0: Hello, Frighters! I'm Holland Elise, and this is Fight or Fright. Hello, hello, hello! Welcome to Fight or Fright. Welcome, 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 welcome to Fight or (laughs) Fright. Hey guys, it's Holland here, and welcome to another week of Fight or Fright and I am so excited to be here. I love doing this. It gives me something to do during quarantine with that nasty Rona that's going around. But I just want to say y'all rock. Take care of your mental health and try not to let that Rona get you down. I mean, for me in particular, it's been such a fucking odd sensation these past couple of months, feeling like There should be somewhere that I should be and something I should be doing. And I mean, damn, for like four days to a week, it is so much fun to be like, yeah, I don't have anything to do. I can sit on the couch. I can go for a walk. I can go to the park with a mask, of course. But after that, it just becomes fucking boring and really quick. It becomes boring. And now I am going to speak to some recent kind of headline things. So see, I fucking loved Glee. Not gonna lie. It is mostly because of my love for Harry Potter, which led me to a very Potter musical, which led me to Daring Chris and Glee. It is a tangled web I weave, but... This week, the news about Naya Rivera came out and her body was found. And it's just so, 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 so fucking sad, especially because her son was alone on the boat. And I know this is like my tinfoil hat coming out and everything. But with all the death and tragedy that's come to the actors on the show Glee, it's got me convinced there's some fucking curse going on with that show. I don't know what it is, but just... All of the sad, tragic deaths that happened, Mark kind of did some horrible things, but still committing suicide and all of those things is still sad for the loved ones and the people that you left behind. And then Corey Monteith, it's just all so, so sad. And Naya, in my opinion, had one of the most beautiful voices on Glee. I thought her singing voice was incredible. And when it comes to dancing, I am like the whitest of white people. So I'm in like awe of her dancing skills. And so it's just so sad what happened, especially that her son was by himself on the boat. And I mean, I'm so glad that he was rescued because he's so young, but it's still so sad. And my thoughts go out to her, her family, especially her son and May Naya Rivera rest in peace, because it's a really sad, tragic death. And so now that I kind of got that out of the way, I am going to go into the fright of fight or fright, because the one thing that scares me more than anything in this world is being wrongfully convicted of a crime I did not commit. And this week, I am going to speak about a crazy wrongful conviction Though I also kind of believe all of them are crazy, but, you know, this one is like, woo. And I'm going to speak about the wrongful conviction of Rafael Ruiz. This story, if you are like me, will upset you, but I already have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the U.S. justice system in general. I find that wealthy people get the benefit of the doubt, while those living paycheck to paycheck don't always Also, if you're white, it helps. And I I digress. There's many problems in everything, but I'm going to get to the actual story of Rafael Ruiz. And we are going to take that time traveling thing, wibbly wobbly timey wimey, all the way back to 1984. And the story begins on May 18th, 1984. Rafael Ruiz was 24, and he was staying with his brother in apartment 6B of the Robert F. Wagner Public Housing Complex in East Harlem, New York. I've been to New York City a lot of times. I can honestly say I've never been to Harlem, but it was a public housing complex. He was staying there at that, that night with his brother and During that night, a woman was found on the sidewalk outside of this housing, public housing, and she was hyperventilating, and she was checked out, and it was found that this woman had been brutally beaten and raped. And once she was up to it, she ended up speaking to the police, as most people in this situation would, and she told them that the man that was responsible for this Horrible, horrific, awful gang rape ordeal was named Ronnie. She gave them the information on what happened that night. And Ronnie had given her a ride in his car to the public housing, uh, Robert F. Wagner, place that she was found outside of. And he brought her to an apartment. And after they were done in the apartment, they went up to the roof. But horribly sadly tragically just awfully this is where more men were waiting and this 18-year-old girl was gang-raped by this quote unquote Ronnie and three other people the victim willingly went back to the police with the police to the building to assist in the investigation and she ended up pointing out apartment 16B in this apartment they knocked on the door and they found Rafael Ruiz, who, as I said, was in this apartment staying with his brother. So once they knocked, he opened the door and they asked if he would come to the precinct and he agreed. He he didn't do anything. And all he knew from the police is that something happened in the building. His name came up because it happened on the same floor as him. And so he went back to the precinct with the police, and they took his picture. This photo was then ended up being placed in a lineup. But in this lineup, there was a major fucking flaw, at least I believe in this lineup. If you can really even call it that, because in most lineups, if it's done correctly, what should happen is it's like five, six people in a photo lineup that look Fairly similar, and you show it to them. And so, in this photo lineup, the victim had already kind of given a description of what the men looked like who raped her. And one of the things was that these people were black, but also they didn't have like an Afro hairstyle. And so, Rafael Ruiz was in a photo lineup with a bunch of people who had the Afro hairstyle, which she said he didn't have. So he was the only person who even kind of remotely, very vaguely resembled the description because he didn't have the Afro hair, which she told them the person didn't have. And so really, he didn't match the original description of Ronnie Ruiz. He really didn't match it at all because, like I said, the... Victim said that it was black men that raped her and Ruiz was Hispanic or not was, he's still alive. So Ruiz is Hispanic. He's not black. So another major flaw that the detectives on this case had the victim do was it wasn't just a photo lineup, but they also had Rafael Ruiz in a room by himself with a two way mirror and on the other side of the two-way mirror, they had the victim identify him. This wasn't like a police lineup where there were more than one person. It's apparently called a one-on-one, one of the articles I read called, and this type of identification is usually not used, and it's only reserved for emergency situations, like if the victim is seriously ill or close to death. So, I mean, I know that the victim was raped and beaten and all of that stuff, and I can only imagine how much she wanted to put this behind her, but she wasn't ill and she was not on her deathbed. So it's kind of odd that this was used in this case. But anyway, Ruiz ended up being charged with the rape and Manhattan DAs offered many plea deals, four to be exact, but they offered him all of these plea deals and one of them would have had Rafael Ruiz only serving one and a half to three years in jail. But every time they offered him a deal, he rejected it because he would say that he's not a criminal and he's not going to admit to a crime he didn't commit. And so the case ended up going to trial. And like any good lawyer, once Ruiz went on trial for rape, his lawyer tried to argue to the court that the identification should not be admissible but the judge allowed it to be brought up during the trial. And once the trial began, the only thing the Manhattan DA had to use against Rafael Ruiz was the victim's testimony and ID. And I believe that these were faulty from the beginning. And Ruiz took the stand as in his own defense, which when I saw that, like, I just can't imagine taking the stand in my own defense. Just because it's, it's never really advised by your attorney to do that, usually you should step back. But I know that that's hard because if you're innocent, then you kind of want to have this feeling that the system's not going to fail you and it can't find you guilty because you didn't do it. So how could the jurors and the judge and everyone find you guilty when you had nothing to do with it? So he took the stand and spoke to his ethnicity being different from her original description and statements. And also, how the fuck could he be Ronnie? Because as the victim said in her own words, in her statement, Ronnie drove her to this public housing. Rafael Ruiz cannot drive. He does not know how to drive. So there's no way he could have driven her. So... How could he be Ronnie and how could he have done what they say he is doing? But like so many before, Rafael, and I can only assume there'll be some after, which is a horrifying thought. But even with this very, very minimal circumstantial evidence, Rafael Ruiz was sentenced to eight and a half to 25 years in jail for this gang ring. He was denied parole many times, and he served the full 25 years in prison. So after eight and a half years, when he started being eligible for parole, they kept denying him until 25 years, which was the longest he was sentenced for. So he was 25 when he went into jail. He was 24 when the crime was committed on this woman, but 25 when he went to prison. And he spent 25 years in jail. So this poor man spent as much time in jail as he had outside of jail by the time he was released. And so sadly, like if you look back on it, he and when he looks back on it, he basically says that he knew, he knew and he felt how he was walking into a courtroom full of people that already were convinced and found that he was guilty. And there's also something I came across in my research, and it's called trial penalty. And this is a word that in its most simplest definition, this means that When someone does not take a plea deal that's offered to them and they take their case to trial, they end up getting more time than someone normally would if they weren't offered a plea deal or obviously if they took the plea deal, they would get less. But when they decide to not take the deal and take their case to trial, they end up getting a longer sentence. This is, I'm, I'm no lawyer, and I, I love the podcast, Let's Go to Court. I don't even have one semester of law school, and my roommate is a lawyer, so she will probably listen to this and give me information, but apparently that's what trial penalty is, and apparently it happens. I'm not 100%. It's just something I came across in my research. But apparently many people who are eventually exonerated, they end up taking the deal that the DAs offer, not because they are guilty or were guilty or in any sense had anything to do with the crime, but because it shortened the time that they would spend in jail. So if someone had like kids or something that they wanted to come back out to and like have some semblance of a life. They, they would take the deal, not because they did it, but because they were nervous that if this went to a court, they would be sentenced to something they didn't do and get more time. So they just took the safe bet, which was the plea deal, so that they wouldn't spend much as much time behind bars. But Rafael in no way wanted to be thought of as a criminal. And he was not. So he was like, why, basically, why the fuck would I admit to something and take this plea deal where I'd have to admit my guilt when I didn't do it? And they're gonna basically close the book on this case. If I come out and take this plea deal and then plead guilty, the police basically closed the book on the case and the, and I didn't do it. So he went through a lot of his appeals, like all of them. And in 2003, 15 years after going to jail and getting convicted of this crime, his family hired a lawyer by the name of William M. Tendy. And William was kind of looking over the files and he just got the idea that it'd probably be a good thing to reinvestigate the case. He kind of found some faults with the case and the prosecution and what was going on. So he just decided to start another investigation to see what was going on. And for one thing, the victim led the police to apartment 16B. As I said before, this is what we call foreshadowing, or before it was foreshadowing, now it's just what happened. But the victim led them to apartment 16B. And across the hall in 16C... There was a woman that lived there, and she had a boyfriend that was called Ronnie. And it's 16B and 16C. They were right across the hall from each other. So once this was figured out, they went to look for the girlfriend that had the boyfriend Ronnie, quote unquote. But they found out that she died in 2009 before they could reach out and talk to her again. Attendee and no one else ever believed that this was malicious or she purposefully led the police on the wrong trail, but they believed it was an accident. She got turned around. I mean, they're right across the hall from each other. So it, it would be hard when you're in a traumatic situation to be, to really remember the like exact, like if it's B or C. All you know is it's 16. So this witness testimony and this witness pointing them in the direction of apartment 16B instead of 16C is what to put them on Rafael Ruiz's heels, even though he looked nothing like the description that she originally stated. And so after he found these inconsistencies, William Tendi, his lawyer, ended up turning the case to the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project worked in tandem with the Manhattan DA, who originally was the people that wrongfully convicted Rafael Ruiz to begin with, and a group called Conviction Integrity Program. And this was all after he'd already served his 25 years in prison. He was out of jail at this point, but he wanted to clear his name. And so this team of people that were working together for Rafael Ruiz and clearing his name, in 2018, they ended up finding the victim of the crime that put Ruiz in jail in the first place. And they were able to get a chance to speak with her. She told them that she still wasn't even sure if Ruiz was the person that raped her. And she was, it seemingly in the article that I read, she she didn't really think that he did it. She told them that she felt pressured by the detectives to identify someone. And they were kind of saying things along the lines of like, They could do this to someone else. How would you feel if they did this to someone else? Like you need to, you need to get these, this person off the street, blah, 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 blah. And they had this not recanting, but they had this victim coming back and saying, I, I felt pressured. Like I had to give an identification, even though I wasn't really completely sure that it was him. Eventually, they were able to get their hands on the rape kit that belonged to the victim. And this rape kit excluded Rafael Ruiz based on his DNA. It excluded him from having anything to do with this crime at all. He couldn't have done it based on the rape kit DNA. And finally, after an exhausting 36-year battle and fight for clearing his name and getting Becoming innocent of something he didn't do on January 28th, 2020. So this was recent. I was still working at this time. It feels so fucking long ago. I feel like there's now before Rona and after Rona. It's like a new timetable, like BCE and all of that. Like I feel like this is a new, a new timeline where it's like before Rona and after Rona because January 28th, 2020, even though it was not that long ago, seems forever ago. But this is the date that the Supreme Court exonerated Rafael Ruiz. He was taken off the sex offenders registry. His records were sealed and he is now 60 years old and has finally gotten his name cleared from the crime that he did not commit. But I mean, he spent so much time in jail for something he didn't even do. And there was so little evidence that he did it. It didn't, I mean, I know in 1984, DNA wasn't really a thing. And there wasn't really any other evidence, just her saying like, this happened to me, this is the apartment. But she didn't even, from what I read in the articles, she didn't even say this is definitely the apartment. She was like, "I, I think this is the apartment. And so he spent time in jail for something he didn't do and there was little evidence that he did it. And his mother died while he was in prison. His mom died before his name could even be cleared. But his friends and family never gave up on him. They knew he didn't do this. His friends, family, everyone stood behind Rafael Ruiz, which is why they got him a new lawyer. They got him in touch with the Innocence Project. They kept fighting for him. And they all kept fighting even after he was out of jail because- They still had to pay for him. He couldn't get jobs because this was still on his record. So his family was behind him 100%. And so, like I said, he's now 60 years old and he still lives in NYC, which I love because I love New York City. I have fond memories of New York City. I'm originally from outside of Philadelphia. So on like special occasions, I would take the train to New York to go to the ticket stand and get Broadway tickets for cheap or see Broadway shows. I loved Ellen Stardust Diner. It's like one of my happy places and I loved watching all of the people sing. So it was amazing and I love New York City. I don't think I could ever live there because it's too fast paced for me, but I love visiting there and I especially love seeing Broadway shows. And he still lives there too. And he's still being supported by his family, but he speaks to being a bit nervous that even though his record is clear, he's no one's still gonna want to hire him because I mean, your face is still in the papers and your name, like, even though you were cleared, it still has this connotation and this attachment to it that should have never been there because there was not enough evidence for this to go to trial, I don't think personally, from what I've read, and I couldn't find a lot of the stuff from back then because a lot of the stuff I found was the more recent things that talked about his exoneration and like they briefly went over the incidents. But what from what I found, there wasn't a lot of evidence other than the testimony and identification from the witness which didn't even completely match her original statement. But he says that he's just gonna go about his life, staying out of trouble and just taking things as they come. And he's just glad that this is all done. He wants to settle down with a woman and spend time with his family. And he hopes that this situation can be a lesson or something that's taught to lawyers and just people in general, so that anyone in his situation in the future, it won't happen to him. Someone won't get wrongfully convicted because of what happened to him. He wants something good to come out of this, which when you spend 25 years in jail, knowing that you're innocent, you like, you would want something good to come out of this so that no one else has to go through what you went through. Because like I said, it's really only the victim's ID and testimony that they used in trial. It's not like they really had DNA at the time. So there was no DNA evidence. They didn't even test the DNA until like 2018 or 19 or something. So they didn't have much going to trial. And the ID was done when Raphael didn't even match the description, like I said. And I'm saying nothing about the victim because this is a traumatic situation. You just went through fucking hell, this woman. So this has nothing to do with her and how you would be able to just like after that traumatic experience, just be able to recall like what apartment you were in. That's fucking ridiculous. You're in, you're in trauma. You've been beaten. You've been raped. You've had these horrific things happen to you that you haven't even really been able to process yet. And then the police are bringing you to the place where it happened, where you can relive the trauma. And then you're expected to remember exactly what apartment you went into. You can know what floor you went to. I'm not I'm not saying that you can't, but knowing if it's 16B, 16C, 16D, that's a little bit harder. So I feel like they should have looked into everyone on that floor, not just the apartment that she was like, I think this is it. And like I said, this has nothing to do with the the victim. She was traumatized. She was in shock. She was scared. She just had a horrible thing happen to her. But the detectives, I just kind of feel like they could have done a more thorough and better job. And I don't even know if they could have done a more thorough job. There just wasn't really the evidence there. Maybe, like I said, if they'd checked the whole floor and they figured out that the girlfriend across the hall from Raphael's brother had a boyfriend named Ronnie or that went by Ronnie, maybe then they would have been able to delve down a little bit more and do a little bit more investigation. But there, DNA wasn't really a thing at that time. It's not like they had like fingerprints or like, they didn't have much to go on with this case, other than her description, her word and her ID. So I just, I feel like even if it, this might be an unpopular opinion, but even if this was Ruiz, which it now is known that it wasn't because we now have DNA and they retested the DNA so we know it wasn't him. But even if it was him, there was not enough evidence for this to go to trial. Witness testimony is very faulty. And I know a lot of these things came up more recently in knowing like that witness testimony is faulty and all of these things like mental health, how we react to things like we're still learning about all of these things. We still don't know everything about it. And we definitely in 1984 didn't know anything about it. So there, I just don't think that this could have gone to trial or should have gone to trial. It was a very, very, very light circumstantial case that had no, actual physical shred of evidence. And I feel bad for the victim because she was raped and beaten. And now after all of this time, the person that the police put in jail, she knows didn't actually do it. And DNA shows he didn't actually do it. And it's sad because she deserves to have justice. She deserves justice. And she deserves for the right person and the person that actually helped commit this horrible gang rape that she went through. They should be in jail. And I kind of hope that Rafael Ruiz can file a civil suit or something to get some money for the wrongful conviction. I don't know if New York allows people to get compensated when they're wrongfully convicted. There's, I know there's some states that don't actually allow you to uh, bring up a civil case and get anything for being wrongfully convicted. I don't know if New York is one of those states, but... The case was fucking weak. And I mean, that's probably why they, that could have been one of the reasons why they wanted to offer him a plea deal and wanted him to plead. So like I said, he could say that he is guilty. They can wipe their hands of the situation and be done with it. They don't have to look into it. The case is closed. It's done. There's nothing else they need to do. But it was just so thin. And in the end, I'm just very glad that he was able to get out because once you are convicted, like I was shocked when I saw that the Manhattan DA, one of the more recent DAs, obviously not the one in the 1980s or 90s, but the more recent Manhattan DA was working with the Innocence Project to get this guy off and get his name cleared, not get him off because he was already out of jail, but, but clear, help clear his name. I'm because that's not norm. That doesn't usually happen. It's like once you put someone in jail, it's like, huh, see, close the case. It's done. Woo, this is awesome. Look at how great I am. I have another win on my record. Woohoo. But I'm just glad that he kept fighting. He was finally cleared. And everyone now knows that he was innocent and he did not do this. And, you know, I hope he does find a nice woman to settle down with. Use that match.com. E Harmony. If he's frisky Tinder, I don't know. I just hope he lives it up because, from my law and order SVU watching and my true crime obsession, jail usually is not known as a, for being a great place for people that are convicted of rape. So I hope he's able to live it up the rest of his life and enjoy what time he has left. But that's not gonna bring the 25 years that were spent behind bars for something he didn't do. That's not gonna bring that back. So it's it's just sad that this happened to him. And like I said, it's one of my biggest fears. Like I legit have nightmares about being wrongfully convicted for something I didn't do. It's a terrifying thought and it could happen to anyone. Could literally happen to anyone. It's it's one of those things where like I don't give a fuck how guilty I look from my true crime obsession. I know that if a policeman even knocks on my door, I am saying lawyer and not saying a word. I don't I don't care how guilty it makes me look. I am a good person. I may be morbidly curious and fascinated by true crime and things that happen. But that's because I'm so fascinated by the way that the criminal criminal mind works because it's so different from how my mind works. It's just like a complete 360 from how I actually work. Well, no, complete 180. It's the complete opposite of how I think. So it's just so weird. And that's why I'm fascinated by it. So I know that if I were to take a lie de- I would never take a lie detector test because even the person that invented the lie detector test is like that shit's fucking bullshit, man. <laughs> and I get stressed and anxious so easily that I feel like that would interfere with my testing. So even if it made me look guilty, I would I would not do a polygraph or a lie detector test. I would get a lawyer. In one second, because this is my biggest fear. So, everyone, that's another episode of Fight or Fright. I hope you enjoyed it. You can follow me on Instagram at Holland Elise at Fight or Fright Pod, on Twitter at Fight Fright Pod, on Gmail, you can email me at Fight or Fright pod at gmail.com, and on Facebook, I am also at Fight or Fright Pod or fight or fright podcast if you're searching it. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please tell a friend. I love doing this and I love seeing that people from different countries are listening. I know it's not many from different countries, but apparently I'm now in six countries, which is really fucking cool. And I love it. So please reach out to me on social media Please tell a friend, rate and review if you enjoyed it. You guys are awesome. This is so much fun, and I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I'll be back next week with a whole new episode. All right, guys. See you next week. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Fight or Fright. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Fight or Fright Pod, and on Gmail at fightorfrightpod at gmail.com. Twitter is the only one that's a little bit different in there, and that's at fightfrightpod. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it, and it would really help me if you rate and review on Apple Podcasts, even just spreading the word to family, friends, people you know that enjoy true crime, mysteries, paranormal, all of that kind of stuff. And this is Holland. And I'll see you next week when I tell you another crazy story. And remember, you don't have to fight this sprite.